Awesome. All right, we're going we're gonna to start on the back of the handout today. Shake it up a little bit. And people that come in late will think, oh, wow, she's almost done. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> okay. All right. So on the back of the handout, so what, now what? I just want to point out two questions that were from your study that I thought were so excellent. Both of these questions are on page 72. One is day four, one is day five, same page. The first question says, what are some practical ways you might draw nearer to God? This comes from, the phrase itself comes from scripture in James. And I encourage you to read that scripture and the context of it. And in reading the scripture, you'll actually find a deeper answer to the question than maybe what you might have given originally. But I want to back up and ask you a different question. Where is God? And on your handout, I have answered this for you according to scripture. And you can look those up on your own later. But God is in heaven and on earth everywhere in relation to me. He's with me. He's before and behind me. And he's in me. One scripture we'll look at together. Jeremiah says, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Okay, if you're paying attention in your mind right now, it should be like, whoa, what? Can anyone hide from me in secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth? The conclusion then is I cannot possibly get any closer to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I cannot possibly get closer to him. He, he, is, he is everywhere and even in me. So the answer then is not a matter of location. It is a matter of awareness, attention, attitude. And might I suggest that we rethink and reword the question, when am I most aware of God? Do you see the difference? Or his presence, if you want to think of it that way. Is it a place that triggers this for me? Is it a person, an activity? An example of what I'm talking about here is some friends of ours are missionaries with a J, Josiah Venture, JV. And she posted this last week on Facebook. Heading to our JV fall conference where we will be looking at the greatest commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. God turns up in all kinds of ways to remind me that he's teaching me even with snacks on the flight. And so it begins. They were on their way from O'Hare to Vienna. And this was their snack. And it's not moving. Anton. There you go. Thank you. I love these God incidences. This is what I'm talking about. Not coincidences that happen in our lives. The sweetness of Jesus when he says, I see you. I am with you. I am for you. I love you. There's a quote on your handout. We certainly don't earn God's presence by anything we do, but by our choices. Oh, that's the name of our lesson this week. Which produce action. We demonstrate our receptivity to God's presence. We demonstrate our desire for his presence. The second question I want to point out is again on that same page 72, but now we're in day five. Have you ever experienced a time 
When God's presence or power was so real in your life, it was undeniable. When I read this question, I immediately thought of Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, how good it is to be, there it is, near God. So think, to be aware of God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. That means my hope. I've put my faith in him, secure and sure. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. I just encourage you, if you answer only one question around your tables today, it could be this question. Because what a beautiful opportunity to give God the glory that he so rightly deserves. And if you run out of time today, or maybe you don't have an example to share today, then I'm going to ask that this week you pay attention. You be aware of God Almighty, who you cannot draw any closer to than what he is right now in every second. Pay attention and ask God to help you be aware of his presence. And then you could save this question for next week or revisit it again during our informal time. What a beautiful thing, again, to do around our tables. Okay. Our kids, um, I had a toddler and two in elementary school. And we were flying to Texas to visit one of my sisters. It was again over spring break. By the way, for those of you who listened to the first lecture, yes, I understand the whole beginning was cut out. So you didn't hear the airplane story. So later when I'm talking about meet the pilot, meet the pilot, you're going, what pilot? Okay. But we're recording now. So the story is on in in its entirety. Different story, but airports again. So Ken sweetly, you know, he's got a, he's got a real job. I, I was gone over spring break. And so I sat with him while he made the reservations for us. We would have to make a stop in DFW, which that's typical to get, we were trying to go to Wichita Falls and that's a smaller place. So I sat with him while he made the reservations so I could pick the times and, and the seats and all of that. And so our reservations were made and we had our tickets and, We headed to O'Hare, these three blessed children, and me. And the plan was, when we got to Wichita Falls, Anton, I'm not switching again. Um, I was supposed, my sister, this sister's name is Donna. I was supposed to meet my sister at the airport. She was going to be waiting for us. So we land in Wichita Falls, and it was late, and the kids were hungry and tired. The mama was also hungry and tired. And no Donna. Now, Donna is always late. We're different as night and day. I'm always early. Donna's always late. So I'm like, Donna, for real. So I call Donna. And she says, I'm here. Like, she was so proud of herself because she actually was there. She goes, I'm here. I said, where? She goes, right here. I said, where are you? She goes, look out the window. The, the airport's small. I'm like, looking out the window. I'm like, you're, you're not here. And she said, you're not here. <laughs> and it took us a while to figure out that... We were not there. We were in Wichita, Kansas, not in Wichita Falls, Texas. Close, but no. And the long day just got longer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here this morning and thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the gift of your spirit, who we are trusting to be our teacher this morning. We open our minds and hearts to know you more. 
In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Now, our text this week is in 1 Kings 18, 22 through 40. I want to back up just to get us all on the same page with where Chrissy left us last week. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So everybody is up on Mount Carmel. This is Mount Carmel. So that we're talking all the people of Israel, which now we're referring to only the northern kingdom. Remember from our introduction. So we're talking all the people of the northern kingdom. Then we had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 additional prophets of Asherah. We had the king and the queen, their court. And then there is Elijah and probably his servant was there with him too. And the challenge is given. The response, silence, non-committal. Notice that the people did not yell out, Baal is Lord. They, they didn't yell out for Baal, but they also certainly did not yell out, the Lord is God. What must have been going through their minds? What must they have been feeling? There they all are, right there, all together. They knew their king and queen worshiped Baal and Jezebel had already tried to kill all the prophets. And by the way, here's Elijah standing there. What would she do if the people spoke out? Would she try and kill them too? These were real people. This really happened. You, do you feel it? What they must've been thinking. Was there an anticipation, some excitement on the pending contest that was about to happen? Did some remember the stories of Yahweh? This is not the first time that Yahweh is called on to fall from heaven onto a sacrifice. It's happened at least four times in the Old Testament already. So are they, do some of them know that story? I think they do. All right. So the big question is, who is God? A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis, by the way, disagrees with this and says, The most important thing is what God thinks about us. But anyway, A.W. Tozer goes on. And that the first line is a, a highly quoted line, but there's such depth in what he says next. The, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do. But what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is why it's so important that what our mind thinks is the truth based on God's word. Which again is why we're here, right? Then Elijah says to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Was this true? No, it is not. Because we already know that some prophets were hidden in a cave, right? But in this place, on this day, Elijah stood alone, but with God Almighty. Psalm 118.6 says, the Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Elijah lives out for us what Jesus speaks of in the New Testament in Matthew. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. Ah, Jezebel. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, then Elijah sets the stipulations for the showdown. We read about this, right? Two bulls, 
prepare the sacrifice, but don't set fire to it. And both are going to call on their God. And whomever answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed, scripture says. So the Baal prophets go first. And scripture says, quote, but there was no reply of any kind. So Elijah begins mocking. Second Kings eighteen twenty seven. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. What do we learn about God in Elijah's mocking? Who is our God? First, he says, shout louder. Who is God? Just a few verses from Psalms. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Psalm 55, but I will call on God, and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. Not only does God hear me, he knows what I'm going to say before I even say it. Psalm 139 tells us that. The next taunt, perhaps God is daydreaming. Who is our God? Of what is he thinking? What's on his mind? Psalm 139 again. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. God thinks of me. Look at Zephaniah. You actually read the scripture this week in your work. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. God delights in me. C.S. Lewis says, It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, oh, there's our title of our lesson again this week, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied. But delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. God thinks of you. God delights in you. And Ephesians 2.10 says God has plans for you. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Then the mocking borders on ridiculous. As Elijah questions if Baal needs to relieve himself. He needed to go to the bathroom. Who is our God? Our God has no needs at all. Acts 17. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Then the next taunt is bail away on a trip. Is that why he's not answering? Who is our God? Hebrews 13, 5 says, for God said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And then in Matthew, Jesus says, be sure of this. 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Psalm 23, we are assured that even when we walk through the darkest valley, God is close beside us. Who is our God? God will never leave me. And then Elijah wonders if maybe Bell is asleep and needs to be wakened. Who is our God? Psalm 121. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleep. God never sleeps. Actually, Isaiah 40, 28, all of these are on your handout, tells us that God doesn't even get tired. He doesn't grow weak or weary. Well, it's not going well for the prophets of Baal. They shout louder. They cut themselves. And you can see here in one artist's rendition, it's quite a frenzy around the altar. They're trying harder and harder. Imagine not just this sight, but the sounds of what is happening. Now, at some point, did they quiet everybody down so they could maybe hear? Hear? Of course, there is no response. Scripture says in verse 29, quote, there was no sound, no reply, no response. Why? Well, because Baal's not real. I mean, that's an easy answer, right? Baal is not real. Baal is not God Almighty. Well, then it's Elijah's turn. He calls the people over and he rebuilds the altar to God. He digs a trench. He puts the wood and prepared sacrifice on top of the altar. How many stones did he use? 12. Where are we? North or south? North. How many tribes are in the northern kingdom? 10. Later, when he's praying, he's going to make sure that the people know he's praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a reminder to the people. Don't think just for one second this is just your God even that we're talking about. Do you see? And how many gallons of water will the trench hold? Three. So, so these are, so in a trench. So the trench was not very big, right? The trench around the sacrifice was really there to catch the blood. So just three gallons. So you see, see the trench is not too big. Three gallons of water are in the trench. I still can't believe I have exactly 17. Trace Barble. Oh, thank you. Oh, oh my gosh. I was doing the math. I'm like, okay, that would be 3.125. Okay. Later. We'll come back to it. I'm just excited. Okay. All right. Then he tells them, Elijah tells the people to fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood and do it three times. So how much water are we talking about here? There's an abstract written entitled Thermodynamic Analysis of the Fire Miracle on Mount Carmel by Charles E. Bockle. Now, you can't just take things that you read on the internet. We all know this, right? So I'm like, who is Charles E. Barkle? So then I have to start researching who is this man. Well, he's for real. He's a scientist, and his specialty is combustion. I just took three of the books he's written. He writes textbooks on combustion. And for some reason, he took this on. He wanted to know what would cause the combustion that happened that day. So he did the research based on biblical times. I read the whole thing and you are welcome. 
my physicist dad, who is up with Jesus right now, um, would be so proud that I made it all the way through. And I really, as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, dad, I wish you were here. I would love to talk with you about this. But he's not. He's having a better day than any of our days here. Um, I didn't understand it all, but I did was able to pull out a few and I'll give you the bottom line answer in just a moment. But regarding the amount of water, I mean, the guy researched the stones, what would they have been made of limestone, but based on where the mountain was, he researched the altar, how big it would have been the trench, the water, the type of wood that would have been used. And he even researched the type of cow that would have been up on the, and, and got it boiled down to two. And then the average weight of the cow, the guy really did his research. Okay. Regarding the amount of water, what he did was took the average amount of water. It is believed that the, some of your translations actually might say barrel. It's not like barrels, like what we think of on pirate ships. You know what I'm talking about? It was most likely the water jugs that the women used on an everyday basis to carry water in. And there's a range of how big those jugs were. So this man, our doctor here that we're so thankful for, did the research and using the lesser of the estimates, the total would have been about 51 gallons of water. Here we have, thanks to our people who brought our jugs, 17 gallons of water. So three times this amount, three times this amount of water was poured all over that sacrifice and the wood. And where did that, so that's at least 51 gallons. Do you understand what I'm saying? Probably more. And where did they get the water? I had to cut that out of the lecture to stay to 30 minutes. So, oh, that was fun. Different study, not Dr. Bockles, but we got to keep going. So, all right. Notice the people. He has the people participate. When I read this, it reminds me of like a magician show. You know how they do that? They call for audience participation. Now, why does a magician do that? To, sh to validate what is going to happen, right? To legitimize it. Now, I can imagine years, 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 years. I mean, even now today, we still know the story. And people would say, no, I was there. I poured the water on. It was real water. Can you hear it? All right. Then Elijah prays. At the usual time. For offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. So did you catch this? None of this was his idea. Can you imagine when God's telling him, okay, then Elijah, what you're going to do? And, you know, I know Elijah had a probably a lot more faith than I did, but it, you know, would you, you sure? So you want me to wet the altar? Okay. F oh, that's going to be over 50 gallons, Lord, right? Can you hear it? Or maybe Elijah was just such a bold man of faith that he's like, got it, Lord, I'll get 50 over 50 gallons of water. Anyway. All right. Just, you have to realize these are real people, real, this really happened. Okay. All right. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Don't miss the purposefulness in this. God is drawing his people back to himself. And then in verse 38, 
Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up the water in the, all the water in the trench. What burned up? Everything. Except the mountain. They're still standing on the mountain. But everything else, like the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water. What must this have looked like? We didn't have cell phones then. Back to the results from Dr. Bockel, his bottom line analysis in calculating the order of magnitude that would have caused all of those things to burn up. Again, you're welcome. I made it through. Here's the bottom line. The analysis shows the fire was unnaturally hot. The vast majority of the energy would have been used to destroy the stones used to make the altar. And the amount of power would have been comparable to a modern power plant. Pure oxygen may have been used to combust the fuel raining from heaven to produce a flame hot enough to consume stones. There is no natural explanation for the source of this pure oxygen, which is produced today by various air separation techniques. The flame temperature needed to vaporize the altar stones would have been higher than can be produced by normal air fuel flames and could not have been produced naturally. Oh, the results of the showdown on Mount Carmel. Who is God? The Lord is God. Remember, this was the original challenge. Regarding who to follow, who is God. And then we hear it again in his prayer. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. The Lord is God. And again, God pursues his people. This is true of God then. It's true of God today. Ezekiel 34 says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. In the New Testament, Jesus states this as his mission in Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Anyone here praying for someone who is lost? I am. Every day I pray for him. And this truth is such comfort and so full of hope to me. Because it's personal. Look at Matthew 18. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, to make the point. What will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? If you're praying for someone, look that up today and keep reading. And the answer is yes, he will. And there will be great rejoicing. And who is our God? God is a consuming fire. In Hebrews... Chapter 12, we read, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, this is actually a quote from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It's referenced on your handout there. And the context, if you go back and read the Deuteronomy passage, is a warning not to break the covenant with God through idolatry. It says, quote, God has absolutely forbidden this, that this refers to idolatry, worshiping anything or anyone other than God Almighty. God is a consuming fire here on Mount Carmel. I alluded to this earlier. This is not the first time God has shown himself. It's not a one hit wonder, even though that in itself would have been amazing. As the doctor puts it, really inexplainable. 
He had already established himself through fire on altars numerous times. And I put them there on your handout if you'd like to look those up later. The Leviticus one is Moses and Aaron when they go into the tabernacle. It says, fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. The judge's passage is Gideon. And it says, fire flamed up from the rock. So this time it didn't fall down. God can do whatever he wants, right? Because he's God, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. First Chronicles 21, that passage is David. When David prayed, the Lord answered him by sending fire from heaven to burn up the offering on the altar. Do you understand all those people standing, all the Israelites standing on that mountain knew these stories? All right. Second Chronicles is Solomon. You can read that on your own Exodus. This time, it's not that he uh, comes down on an altar, but the context is Moses. And in verse 17, it says to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Who is our God? Here we have this contest, which is really no contest at all, right? There is no comparison ever to our God. God is incomparable. Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. In this passage, God continues to go on to explain the foolishness of worshiping any other than himself, the one true God. And he concludes the description of the idolater like this. The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. Think about that. Feeds on ashes. That is disgusting. Who would ever feed on ashes? I can't even ask you, have any of you eaten ashes? Of course you have not. Oh, I almost need a mint, Marlene, just thinking about that. Mm. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yes, yet he cannot bring himself to ask. And God writes the most beautiful, so what, now what question. Is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? I would put that as a so what, now what question, but it's too easy because the answer is always yes. Right? Well, the people on Mount Carmel respond to God. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. The prophets of Baal were executed and Elijah tells Ahab, go get something to eat and drink for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. That's what you're going to study next week. The king and queen, the 850 prophets, the people, they all had faith. Their faith was sincere Heartfelt, rather enthusiastic, but their faith was misplaced. They had faith in Baal. Sincerity does not the truth make. As sincerely as we believed we were on a plane to Wichita Falls, it did not make it true. We had complete faith we were going to Wichita Falls. We had complete faith on that pilot and that plane, or we would not have gotten in and buckled up for the ride. We were sincere and we were sincerely wrong. David Jeremiah puts it this way. Faith is not as important as the object of faith. 
They had faith in Baal, but their faith was worthless because the object of their faith was worthless. Our author in our study this week makes these three points. Beliefs impact behaviors. It is possible to be sincerely wrong and sacrificial dedication to an idea doesn't make it true. The consequence of our misplaced faith on that American Airlines flight obviously affected our journey. The consequence of misplaced faith on anyone or anything other than the one true living God Almighty, as sincere, enthusiastic, heartfelt as it might be, absolutely affects not just our journey, but our destination. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 Peter We read, through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. My faith is only secure, sure and true in God alone. The consuming fire that rained down from heaven, that sent his son from heaven and that raised his son from the dead. And so we say with those on Mount Carmel, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Lord, you are God. Amen. You're dismissed.